Spirit decided at what time he would fall upon those people. And when did he fall upon them? It says when he spoke these words. What words? He told them that all their sins were taken care of, that they were forgiven. And that's when the Holy Spirit decided to fall upon them so mightily that it ended Peter's preaching. And if that wasn't enough, just go two chapters over to Acts 13, and the Apostle Paul is preaching. And he's preaching to these Jews, and he, tells, and he makes this statement. He says, I want you to know this, that all of you have remission of your sins through the blood of Jesus and what the law could not do in making a person sanctified, if you would just believe in Jesus, you'll be made sanctified or justified or made holy. He said, all of you already have that if you just believe in him. And it said when he said that, it said they, the Jews begged him to come back the next Sabbath and preach that same sermon again. When's the last time a preacher had somebody beg them to preach what he preached that Sunday, the next Sunday? And it said the next Sabbath, the next Sabbath, the whole city turned out to hear him. And you know what they wanted to hear? What I'm about to preach to you this morning. What the Holy Spirit fell upon in Acts 10 and what the people begged him to preach is what I'm delivering to you today. The same word, same message, same good news. And when you receive this, it changes everything. It changes how you see God because... It rewires how God sees you. God's always saw you that way, but you just get to understand and appreciate and appropriate that. So that's what we're going to go after today. I'm just going to pray that my voice will hold out and y'all are. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word, for your people in this house. We pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that our hearts and minds will be illumined, transformed by the grace of God. In this very moment, in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, it's so important for us to understand total and absolute complete forgiveness. And listen to me. When forgiveness is taught the way the Bible explains it, people naturally, especially religious people, naturally have objections to it. And they start saying questions and saying things like this. Well, don't sin matter. Are you saying I can live any kind of way? Or, you know... And I told you that's just really stupid, but people did that to Paul, and they still do that to me. I told you that's like saying when you see a man and a woman enter into a death do us part covenant of marriage for someone to come up and tell us to that man or that woman, well, now that you're in covenant and they've promised they'd never leave you or forsake you, you know, for better or worse, to death do you part, now you can sleep with as many people as you want to. How many knows that's a spirit of stupid? And it's also a spirit of stupid for people to say, because we've been forgiven of sin, now you can just go out and sin all you want to. Because what that does is that's just total religion and it removes the aspect that we actually love God. We love him. That's why we don't, we don't, we don't want to do those things. But when I didn't understand this, and I'm going to tell you most Christians don't understand what I'm trying to talk to you about. But when I didn't understand it, I never really had full 100% confidence in my relationship with God. In other words, when I would do wrong or sin or have a failure, then, then I would feel unworthy. I felt like God was disappointed with me. And so instead of turning to God for strength, I would, I would distance myself from him out of shame and fear and, 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 and guilt. And uh, my perception that God was disappointed, it, it didn't help me to sin less. It actually propelled me into sin more. Uh, now listen to this statement. Now listen carefully. I'm going to make a statement, and it's true. But if you don't listen carefully, you'll, you'll say I just lied. Jesus did not die for your sins. Did you hear what I said? 
Jesus did not die for your sins. Jesus died for your sin. You catch the difference? Jesus did not die for your sins, plural. Verb, Jesus died for your sin, singular, noun. Sin is a noun. It is not a verb. Most of you think sin is when you do something wrong. If you really got down biblically, you couldn't even define sin. When, when, when sin shows up in the Bible, sin is a noun. How many remembers your English class that you love so well? A noun is a what? Person, place, or thing. And so Jesus, he died for sin as a whole, not as sins, your actions. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and 21, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For he made him who knew no sin. There is it's a noun. You say, where you, I mean, I, I don't, you know, buy you an interlinear Bible, Strong's Concordance, that's, that's where you can see the tense and all that. But he made him to be a noun sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteous of God. One of my most, in him, one of my most favorite verses. Now listen, the book in the New Testament where the word sin is mentioned more than any other book, anybody guess what that book is? Romans. 45 times in the King James Bible, the word sin appears in the book of Romans. Listen, 44 times it's a noun. Only one time is it a verb. Uh, that should say something to us. The first time the word sin appears in the Bible it's in the book of Genesis. And it comes out of the mouth of God. God uses it for the first time in Scripture. And, and he's talking to, God is speaking to Cain, who has just murdered his brother Abel. How many knows that's a sin? And in Genesis 4 and 7, I'm going to read the King James Version, but just, and you'll see why. It says, If thou dost well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou dost not well... Sin, first time it appears in the Bible right there, sin, and it's a noun, lieth at the door. One translation said sin crouches at the door. And, look, and look, look at this. And unto thee shall be his, his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. So in the King James Bible, it puts it as a person. It actually says sin is a person and refers to him as his and him. That's interesting, isn't it? So the first time sin even makes an entrance onto the pages of Scripture, it is not an act that someone did. It is an entity. It, 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 is, it is a noun. Romans chapter 8 verse 3 said that God, because what the law was weak to do through the flesh, talking about our flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and he sent him on account of sin, not sins, and he condemns sin, not action, sins, noun. He condemns sin in the flesh of Jesus. In other words, Jesus was condemned because of sin, and he bore the penalty of that sin. In other words, you can't, you can't condemn a person unless they've been found guilty. So, so, so listen, this is the statement. The problem that, the, that we have today in the world, really, is we don't know this. You would think that we would know this because it's so clear in the Bible. It's not, your, it's not about your sin. I, I know this is hard for some to process, especially if you've been raised in church 
where church is nothing but sin conscious, a sin focus, and Christianity is nothing but a, a, a behavior modification program in a lot of churches. And they just try to get you to come and be a better person and sin less. And they think it's all about that. But, we, but listen, in, in the regular church, we've always raised up to be aware of sin, to be sin conscious, to resist sin, to fight sin, to run from sin, to try to overcome sin. And we've we got an unhealthy obsession with sin. It's no wonder that we violate the scripture in Hebrews and that we as Christians, we are, we are sin conscious instead of Christ conscious. The Bible says in Hebrews that if the sacrifice actually worked, there would be no more sin consciousness. And God tells me now that I'm to reckon sin is dead. Reckon myself that I'm dead to sin in my life. It has no bearing on my life. It is not a barrier between me and God. Again, I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I'm not saying that there's no consequences to your sin. If you, I've told you this. I've used this one all the time because it's so clear. But if you go down to the bank and you stick a pistol across the counter and you rob the bank, that's a sin. And they're going to come get you, and they're going to lock you up, and you're going to probably serve some time. But God's not doing it to you. God's not paying you back. You're just suffering because of your unwise choice. God's, not got, God's already forgave you that 2,000 years ago. So God's not getting you. Whatever you're going through in your life, marriage, finances, business, you're not being paid back for your past sins. All of your sins were forgiven at the cross 2,000 years ago. And if you know, I want to tell you, I'm, I'm amazed how many people just absolutely don't know that. Romans 5 verse 10 says, when we were enemies, enemies, we were reconciled to God. It's before you came to church. It's before you prayed. While you were an enemy of God, God said, I already took care of it, and I reconciled you to me through the death of his son. Much more, having been, not going to be, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that. But we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now, everybody say now, have received the reconciliation. You know what reconciliation means? It means to be brought into peace and harmony. It means to be brought into absolute harmony. And it says, therefore, just as through one man, everybody say one man. So through one man, and, and unless your name was Adam and you lived, now I ain't talking about that one back there to preach last Sunday. But unless you lived in the Garden of Eden with, with, and your wife was named Eve, he ain't talking about you. It was through that one man, Adam, that sin entered the world. Sin had to enter this world. And the motive for sin wanting to get into the world was to bring death. God told Adam and Eve in the day you eat of that tree, you, he said, you're not going to be on my bad side. You're going to die. And so it says, and death through sin. So sin entered, but the whole purpose behind sin entering is so that death could come. And thus death spread to all men because all sinned. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that God was in Christ reconciling the world, not just Christians, to himself. Now look what it says, not imputing their trespasses to them. Imputing is an accounting word. So God is saying, I don't even credit your account with sins that you commit. I'm telling you, in your account, and you have one, you have a zero balance when it comes to sin. You have no sin in your account with God. You may have it with you in your head and with the devil and your neighbors and your family and your friends, but with God, he keeps no record and he does not impute your sin to your account because he's already forgiven it 
on the cross. You mean future sins? My God, how long have you been coming to church here? How many of your sins were future 2,000 years ago? Did he forgive you then? You're okay. He forgives future sins and had to. 1 John 2 and 2 says that he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, Christians, but also for the whole world. What does propitiation mean in this text? It means the satisfying sacrifice. It means that God was, sacrificed, was satisfied with the sacrifice of his son. When you understand this, listen to me, and I can't take the whole message to establish just one thing, but God's economy for forgiveness is not you apologizing. It's not you begging, pleading, or saying. God does not forgive you because you ask him to. Forgiveness is not something that God does. Forgiveness is something that God has done. God's not going to forgive anybody on the whole world today. Did you hear what I said? God's not going to forgive anybody today. And he didn't yesterday, and he's not going to next year or 10,000 years from now because he's already forgiven the world of all sin through the shed blood of his son. When you understand that God's economy for forgiveness is one thing, the blood, and without the shedding of blood, the Bible says how much forgiveness is there? None. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So there's one thing that has caused Almighty God to forgive, and that's it's when the blood of his son was shed. How many times has he shed his blood? Are you expecting him to return and shed it again? No, it says when he appears the second time, he'll appear without sin. What's he talking about? He's not coming back the next time to deal with sin. He already dealt with it. And when he said, it is finished, he was not lying. It was true. He finished what God sent him to do. He took away the sin of the world. When John the Baptist was baptizing and he saw him, he pointed at him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin, sins, not sins, sin of the world. Did he take it away or not? If he took away the sin of the world, does that include yours? So what are we asking God to do every day? Most of the church gets our core problem wrong. They say it's sin. I've had people say when we Pastor Gene one time in my office, I've heard it many times. Well, we're just not sin conscious enough, Brother Dale, today. We need more preaching against sin. No, we need more preaching about Christ and the grace of God. The problem is not sin, and the church thinks the core problem is sin, but it's not. It's not that we were doing bad things. It's not that we were stealing, lying, cheating, committing sexual sins. It's not our behavior. Jesus did not die on the cross to make us behave better. Receiving Christ will make you behave better. Don't misunderstand me. But that was not his purpose. Jesus did not die to improve my behavior. We, we sin because of death. We're born dead to the things of God. Therefore, we sin. Now, so we sin because of the death. Sin came and sin comes from our death until we get born again. Now, of course, in the garden, death came from the sin. God told them in the day you eat, you should die. So they sinned and they died. But now we are born spiritually dead. By that, I do not mean by that statement like some teach that, that you don't have a spirit. You have a spirit, but it's just dead to the things of God. But it says when you get, that's why sinners are attracted to occult and spiritual stuff. Because they have a spirit. 
But that spirit is dead to the things of God. But it says when you receive Christ, you are dead to the things of the world and you are made alive unto God. So, so it's the, the polar opposite of that. Romans 5 and 19 says, by one man's disobedience. Again, it's one man, many were made sinners. I've asked you this before, this is not the, the message, but I've asked people, how many sins does it take for you to commit to be called a sinner? And most people say one. The answer is zero. Because you were born a sinner. The reason you sin is you were born a sinner, and the reason you were born a sinner because you were born spiritually dead to the things of God. And, you were, you, 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 and that happened to you because of what Adam did. And so, listen, God works in mine and your individual lives. And, and he works to bring us into an intimate fellowship and relationship with him, himself. But listen, when it comes to sin, God is not dealing with you on an individual basis. Through one man, sin entered the world. And death through sin. And then it says death spread to all men. Why did death spread to all men? Because, you, listen to me carefully, we are not born, we weren't, let me say it like this, we are not really, we were not born, we, let me say it that way, we were not really created as far as ourselves in the likeness and image of God. Now you think, well, that's what the Bible says. Adam was made in the likeness and the image of God, but you and I were created in the likeness of image of Adam. That's what the Bible says. 5 and 3 of Genesis, Genesis 5 and 3, it actually says that every seed will give birth after his kind. And it says that they were born sons of Adam. And it says that those sons of Adam, and let me tell you this in case you don't know this, every one of you male and female in here are sons of Adam. And the reason you have to be born again is because of Adam. And you were born in Adam. And in Adam all die. And when you get born again, you're born in Christ and all live. So you are what you are by birth. And so you were born a sinner. You were born dead to the things of God. You were born in Adam. But when you were born, you were not made in the likeness and the image of God any longer because that image and likeness had been marred by sin. You are now the seed of Adam. God doesn't have to come down every day and make new trees, new shrubs. He put the ability in the seed. And he says every seed will give birth of its kind. And when a cow has another seed, it's another cow. You understand what I'm saying? So, so, so we have been reproduced in the image of fallen Adam. And we are after his likeness and after his kind. But when you get born again, in other words, you're after his seed. Are, are you following me? And, and so when you get born again, 1 Peter 1.23 says, you're not born any longer of, of corruptible seed, which was Adam. You're now born again. When you get born again, you're born again of incorruptible seed. You know what incorruptible means? Supernatural seed. Now, now listen to me. Listen to this statement. The seed of a sinless God cannot produce sinful offspring. Did you hear me? The seed of a sinful, uh, of, of a, excuse me, the, let me say that again. The seed of a sinless, sinless God cannot produce sinful offspring of children. You believe that? The offspring is the product of and carries the characteristics of his father. 
Is that right or not? So when you were born in the likeness and the image marred by sin of Adam, you bore that image and you bore his problem and you bore his sinfulness. Why? Because of the seed of Adam of which you were from. But when you got born again in Christ, you are now the seed of God. And now you're born again with incorruptible seed. And so you are no longer the seed of Adam. You're now the seed of Jesus, of God. And the seed of Adam is not stronger than the seed of Jesus. And if you were not sinless in your spirit, you couldn't even talk to God. You couldn't even, God could not be, you couldn't be one with God. That's why 1 John 3 and 9, I don't have time to really, these are some major big verses. 1 John 3 and 9, people try to make it, anyway, here we go. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. Now let's just stop right there. Is that true or not? You go, Brother Dale, I've been born of God, but I still sin. That means you don't understand spirit, soul, and body. And I just ain't got the time, I have, I've done it in the past, but I don't, that's not what I'm talking about today. But you need to understand that your spirit is what got born again. Your mind, your soul, is in process of being renewed. Transformation is going on. And your body will be changed. Okay? But you are three parts. You're triune. Just like God, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. But whoever has been born of God does not sin. That's true. His seed, you see this same phrase I'm using? His seed remains in him. That's why he can't sin. And he cannot sin, in case you're not getting this, God's real, and he cannot sin because he's been born of God. That's a double enunciation of the same statement. You see that? You can't sin. And since you got born again, God has never attributed one sin you've ever done because it's impossible for you to sin in your spirit. Your spirit was made brand new. You're not polished up the old guy. You're a new creation in Christ. And then you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. Bad example. I can't think of nothing better. Nice Del Monaco steak. Vacuum seal it. Flies can land on it all it wants to, but it ain't touching the meat because it's been sealed. When your neighbor comes by and they look at the steak, all they see is flies. Talk about your sin. But they can't see how pure it is because it's been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. Romans 5, 17, by one man's offense, death reigned through the one. Much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus. Now listen, death reigned through Adam, but grace now reigns through Jesus. Isn't that good news? Those who still are in Adam, they're under sin and they're under condemnation. I didn't say God hadn't forgiven them, but that's what they're suffering under because they haven't received the free gift. Okay, those in Christ are under grace and under no condemnation. Those in Christ have escaped Adam's sin and they are now under the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The problem was not just our sin, the problem was our self. We needed something to, to do more than to fix the sin problem, we needed something to fix the self problem. And, and what we needed was life. Jesus said, I've come that they might have life. It wasn't that we, were, we had sinned and needed forgiveness. It's that we died and needed to, to have life. We needed life. So sin is not the issue. So listen, I want to deal with three words today. Real quick, I'm going to do this real fast. 
three words that are very much under, misunderstood by most of the church. Redemption, confession, and repentance. They're, they're sermons in themselves. But, but sin, again, I'm making this third time I've made this statement, is no longer an issue with God. We are redeemed. Everybody say, I am redeemed. Now, what does the word redeem mean? Redeem is a, is a word that means ransom has been paid in full. God has redeemed you. He has paid in full by the blood of his son for you. You have been redeemed. Now, listen to this statement. How many Christians do you know of that cry out to God every day for redemption? Probably never heard of it, have you? How many Christians cry out and they say, God, please redeem me. And then the next day they pray again, Father, please redeem me. And then the next day they say, Father, would you please redeem me? And then next week they go to church and they hear a sermon and they say, Father, would you please redeem me? You don't never hear that, do you? You don't hear Christians crying out for constant re-redemption. But yet in the Bible, redemption and forgiveness is connected. You don't have these back there, but Ephesians 1 and 7, I don't know if you can get them up as fast as I'm going to hit them, but Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says, In whom we have redemption through his blood. Now how did your redemption come? And what did that result in? The forgiveness of sins. According to the what? Riches of his grace. Welcome to Grace Point. All right, so God says redemption here comes by the blood and what it resulted in is forgiveness of sins. So yet Christians don't cry out, Lord, would you please redeem me again? But they're always crying out, would you please forgive me again? Strange birds we are. Colossians 1 and 13. I could give you verse after verse that shows this. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 says he has delivered, not going to, not hope he will one day, he has, past tense, delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us in to the kingdom, I love this phrase, of the son of his love. Isn't that poetic? And then next verse says, in whom we have redemption. How again? Through his blood, what does that result in? The forgiveness of sins. So why don't Christians cry out to God every day for him to redeem them? They believe redemption is a one-time deal. In other words, Jesus paid the ransom. But yet they'll turn around and cry out to God for forgiveness every day. And it's the same thing. You've either been redeemed or you're not. Sin is not the issue with God because we've been redeemed. And with that statement, you are either rejoicing at what I'm preaching, you're shocked by what I'm saying today, or you're sitting there absolutely confused because you've been attending the wrong church for too long. If you don't cry out for redemption every day, then don't cry out for forgiveness every day. Is it wrong for me to ask God to forgive me? It's not wrong for you to be in a relationship with any person and say, I'm sorry for doing that. That's not who I am. I don't want to, to do that. But listen to me. I'm going to make this statement. Some of you ain't going to like it. But if you as a believer cannot believe the word of God that I'm preaching to you, and it's clear in the word, and you, you, you don't believe it, and you cry out to God every day to be forgiven, that's a sin. But you don't have to sweat it so bad because you've already been forgiven of it. But 
but you don't believe it, but, so you wouldn't enjoy that truth, but, but in other words, for you to cry out today and say, God, please forgive me, which fully you're saying he has not, what you're actually saying is the blood of Jesus and the finished work of the cross is not finished, and he didn't do what he said he was going to do, and he didn't accomplish his purpose and mission, and his blood was not sufficient, and his sacrifice was not enough, and that, my friend, is a terrible blasphemous sin. Because Jesus' blood was sufficient, and his sacrifice was sufficient, and he did finish what he came to do, and that is to take away the sin of the world. Come on, give him praise. The message that most people hear in most churches is that when you sin, you're out of fellowship with God. They say it different ways. They say, some even teach that you lose your salvation. They use the word backslide every time you sin, and you're in that condition until you confess that sin individually. Others believe that, well, no, we are eternally secure, but what happens is when you sin, you just lose your fellowship with God. Uh, you, you can't get your prayers answered. God's not helping you. He's not, he's, you know, upset with you, and you can't be used of God because of your sin. And so Christians, they try to deal with their sin by trying to keep every sin confessed. I lived that way for decades. And, 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 and let me just say this right here. That is an absolute, total impossibility for you to confess every one of your sins. Number one, you don't even know when you're sinning. Because all you confess is what you judge to be sin. And what God, God calls unbelief sin. You ever had a moment of unbelief? You confess that when the God is a sin like you did when you committed adultery? No, because you rate him. You've got your pet sins, sins that your religious background has taught you as a sin, and then you've got things that you don't even confess. The Bible says this, that sin is not just what you do. It's things that you should have done that you didn't do. James 4, 17 says that. And, and the Bible says, listen to this statement in Romans 14 and 23. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. You, you ever heard that statement in the Bible? New Testament. So, do we always walk and act and behave and move in faith? Of course not. So you're sinning when you don't. Anytime you do anything that's not of faith, you sin. So instead of you thinking that you sin maybe two, three, four, ten times a day, you probably, all of us in here probably sin a couple thousand times a day. Have fun confessing those one by one. You're not going to have time to go to work, do anything. You're going to have to stay home all day, 24 hours a day, and confess your sins. And then you're going to have to confess your sin for not going to work because you're not providing for your family. That's a sin. Listen, it, we all sin through the weakness of the flesh, but it's impossible to keep every sin confessed. And, and, listen, and listen, if it was possible, and it's not, but if it was, then what that does is shift the whole burden of salvation on our backs. And, and, and there wouldn't be any peace, any rest, any kind of relationship that we could enjoy with God because we would be constantly under that load of trying to make sure that we were right with God and the rapture didn't happen and we'd get left here or whatever, lose our salvation. just absolutely insane that somebody sold that lie to me so many years ago. And I didn't get it from the devil's workshop. I got it from the house of God. If you ask the average believer, what does it mean to be saved? If I went around in this room and said, what does it mean to be saved? The replies would be something like this. It means that I've been forgiven of my sin. It means that I've been given a clean slate. It means that I 
you know, repented of my sins and I asked Jesus to come into my heart. And all, that's the kind of phrases you would hear. And all of those phrases would be wrong. If you ask them a second question, how do you get saved? How do you receive salvation? Or if you ask the average Christian to lead a person, just give us an example of how you would lead a sinner into salvation with Jesus. You would see them do it wrong. Because they would mimic what they've seen and heard in churches. And it would go something like this. Bow your head, close your eyes, repeat after me. Lord, I am a sinner and I need a Savior. I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins that I've committed against you. I ask you to come into my heart and live forever. None of that's in the Bible. Zero of that's in the Bible. Because when you're asking God to forgive you of your sins, you're actually saying he hadn't. And you actually don't mean to, but you're calling him a liar. We don't have to ask Jesus to forgive our sins because he's already done it. Where's that at in the Bible? I'm so glad you asked. When Paul in Acts 16 goes to the, gets thrown into jail in, in Philippi, the Philippian jail, a supernatural occurrence happens through their praise and worship at midnight. Um, the, everybody's chains are loosed, all the prisoners. And when that happened, the jailer did not need a sermon on salvation. He saw the power of God, and he, he looked at Paul and said, this is the question, this is Acts 16, verses 30 and 31. It doesn't get any, listen, guys, it doesn't get any clearer than this in the Scriptures. He looks at this Apostle Paul, and he asks this question, What must I do to be saved? That's real. I'm so glad he asked that, just like that, aren't you? Notice Paul didn't say, Bow your head, close your eyes, repent of your sins. He didn't say confess. In fact, the word sin never enters the conversation. All Paul does to this man is tells him what all you need to do to be saved is to simply believe on what Jesus has already done and you'll be saved. Believe upon the Lord Jesus and thou shalt be saved. You see how simple that is? And look how complicated the church has made it. Paul said the way that you get saved is you simply believe upon Jesus. That's it. You're saved. You don't mention sin. If sin, listen, if sin was an issue still, this is after the cross, it would have to be mentioned. Would you agree? If sin was a problem, it would have to come up right here. But it's not mentioned. The other classic place is Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Classic place. Romans 10 is talking about people getting saved. It says in there that everybody that calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But it does not mention sin. It mentions our second word. First one was redemption. It mentions confession. When the average Christian hears the word confess, they think sin. They put sin with it. Confess, sin. Confession itself, I've taught you this over and over now for months. Confession is a Greek word, homo lego. Homo, same thing, lego, logos, the word of God. Confession is simply agreeing with the word of God. When you confess something, you're coming in agreement with God. You're saying, God, no matter what it looks like, feels like, smells like, I agree with the word of God. Be it unto me according to thy word. I agree with God's word. That's how you confess. So Romans 10 verse 9 says this, that if you confess, notice we're not confessing sin. The word sin does not appear. Why doesn't sin appear here when we're talking about people getting saved? Because sin is not an issue with God. 
If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It doesn't get any clearer than that. There's no sin to talk about with God. If sin was an issue, you would have to deal with it here. But God doesn't bring it up because it's not an issue with God. Sin's not your problem. Your problem is you don't believe what I'm preaching. When, when, in Luke chapter 5, in verse 20, when they lowered the man through the roof, they tore a roof off and lowered a paralyzed guy down in the middle of Jesus' sermon. Jesus looks at that guy that, listen, that guy does not open his mouth. That guy does not say a word. We've got enough sense to know that he has been carried there by his friends because they want to see him healed. They lower him in, and it says, Jesus, when he saw their faith, he said to this man, he says, man, your sins, this ain't even went to the cross yet, are, not will be, are forgiven you. Double enunciation. Man, one, your, two, sins are forgiven you, three, triple. He wanted him to be real clear that you've come to me for healing. And the reason a lot of you won't receive what the free grace of God has provided, like healing, is because you think your sin is a barrier between me, God, and healing you. And, you, and so you try to have the faith to receive your healing, and then the devil reminds you of your sin. And he reminds you of something you've done, and then you disqualify yourself and say, I'm not worthy to be healed. You're not worthy to be healed. Settle it. You're not worthy, but by his stripes, you already are healed in Jesus' name. You, you just hadn't received it yet, but you already are. Well, I don't understand that. Well, keep coming to church, glory to God. I can't cover everything in the Sunday morning. But God says to this man, sin's not your issue, dude. The people that heard it do just like they do in the church today. Pharisees. Who can forgive sin but God? I mean, this all been out of shape. Jesus said, which is easier for me to say to the man sick of the palsy, son, thy sins be forgiven, or say, take up the bed and walk? See what I'm saying? Then, if that wasn't enough, so he just, this man ain't said nothing. How that man got forgiven said, you got to confess your sins. He didn't confess nothing. He didn't even say they like being there. God just wanted him to know, listen, every, listen to me, everybody in here, I don't know what you need from God. It could be healing. But your sin's not a barrier. God's not holding your sins looking at you through an x-ray machine or some kind of deal and saying, well, if you get that sin out there, I'd heal you. If you'd repent of that sin, I'd heal you. All them testimonies you've heard like that, I repented of my sin and then the Lord healed me, all those are lies. I don't care how sincere they were when they told them, they lied. Well, I repented of my sin and I got healed. No, you were already forgiven of your sin. You might have changed your mind about your sin and put you in a position of faith where you received your healing. Big difference. Big difference. Okay? See how religious people, they love me so much when I get so many emails and stuff? If that wasn't enough, John 8, a woman is snatched out of the bed naked, having sex, I assume with a man. She's caught in adultery. Am, am I right? She's pulled out of the bed Carried to the temple, not out in the street. I don't care how many sermons you heard about Jesus took his finger and wrote in the dirt. That's a lie. 
Verse 1 says they were in the temple. Temple has marble floors, stone. So all them sermons, throw them all away. They didn't know what I was talking about. I want to try to figure out what the Lord wrote in the ground. I believe he wrote it. He wasn't even on, he was in the temple. Read verse 1. Quit preaching till you read. He's in the temple with a marble floor. Herod's temple. Really fancy. You should study about it. But he's inside the temple. They bring the woman, throw him at her feet, and they're all standing there with a stone and a rock. And they said, the law says through Moses that we can stone her. If they really wanted to stone her, they would have took her out and stoned her because they had the law. But what they wanted to do was trap Jesus. And they said, what say ye? And Jesus reached down with his finger and wrote on the marble, the stone. You ever heard of anybody else taking their finger and writing on stone? What was his name? God Almighty. Every Jew in there knew what he was doing. It's just us Gentiles that are so far from our Jewish roots that misread the Bible. But Jesus was reminding them of the thou shalt nots. And that's why he did it twice and said, anybody in here without sin, throw the first stone. And that's why it said from the oldest to the youngest, they started dropping the rocks and leaving. I always find that interesting, brother. The oldest one dropped his rock first and got out there. You know why? Because he's had more time to sin. After you get old and you live a little while, you realize you ain't, you, you, man, what, am I, what was I thinking getting with these young folk here and trying to song this one? And listen, what, listen, the woman never opened her mouth and Jesus forgave her. He forgives everybody whether they ask him or not. And let me tell you something else. I've said this over and over. Jesus does not have to have your permission to forgive you. You know, you can do something to me and I can forgive you whether you like it or not. I can say, I forgive you. I don't want you to. Too bad. <laughs> Already have. That's the way it is with God in this world. They would be people that would blaspheme and curse. And when, if you'd go up to maybe somebody and say, you're forgiven. I don't want to be forgiven. Too bad. You already are. God's not mad with you. And there's not a sin or thing you can do to make him angry. Isn't God disappointed with me when the sin? Not unless God's not omniscient. He's not. For you to say that God's disappointed with you is mean that God had expectations that were not realized. Which means God don't know everything. Which is an attack against his omniscience. How stupid is that? God can't be disappointed. Do you understand that God has factored in every failure that you will ever have? And if your name is Jonah and you a bad boy and God tells you to go to Nineveh but you go, by God, I'm going to Joppa. Well, go on to Joppa then. I know you bad and all that. So then you go down in a boat and you go down in the lower part of the boat and you pay the fare and then you go down to Joppa. That's all in the Bible. Notice the direction we're heading. Go ahead and make them decisions against God and see what direction you go in. See how your marriage works out. See how that goes. It's not God's fault. It's your consequences for dumb decisions. And then you get in a storm. And you get in a storm. After a while, they throw you out of the boat. And then you go down into the water, down into the depth of the sea. And you think like he's done for. This guy's done for. And then this little verse pops up. For the Lord had, past tense, prepared a fish to swallow Jonah. He prepared a fish. He didn't draft one. He had prepared one from that fish's birth. 
He said, your purpose is one day they're going to throw a preacher out of a boat. <clears throat> and I've built you special to swallow him. Notice it didn't say in Scripture that I have prepared the great white to eat the rebellious preacher. Not to eat, not to hurt, but to swallow and safely transport where I told you to go in the first place. Now you just smell a little bad when you arrive, but you still get there. Why was Jonah didn't want to go? Because he was one of those guys that didn't like the grace message that I'm preaching. Because he knew what God would do. If those people had any kind of repentance under the old covenant even, God would relent, change his mind, and not send judgment. And that's exactly what he did. Because God is a God that has always desired mercy over judgment. Amen. Would you praise him? So, so here we have an adulterous woman who has not opened her mouth, and yet Jesus has forgiven her. How do you know he's forgiven her? Because he said, woman, where are your accusers, condemners? She said, I don't have any. He said, neither do I condemn you. For Jesus to say, neither do I condemn you, if he's not going to condemn her, that means he's already forgiven her. You, you you, can you see the good news in that? That he's already forgiven her because there's no condemnation. And then he does make the phrase, go and sin no more. Okay? What is it, I've told you this, what is it that gives her the power to go sin no more? The free gift of forgiveness and no condemnation. How, is there anybody in here that, that would be so vile to think that that woman immediately left that, that moment with Jesus, went straight back to that bedroom, took all her clothes off, got back in bed and continued her sexual act? Is anybody vile enough to think that? Are you kidding me? That's the people that come up to me. Well, that means you can just go sin and do anything you want to. How stupid can that be? Once you've been in that kind of atmosphere, you've, been, you've given no condemnation, forgiveness of your sin, and you didn't even ask for it. Man, all that makes that woman want to do is know this man. That makes her want to live for this man and find out more about Jesus and, 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 and love this man. This man's forgiven her no matter what she's done. That's why the woman at the well got so excited. Come see the man that knows everything about me, and yet he forgive me. You got to see this guy. Come on. You get, I mean, y'all get, oh, man, I get so excited about this. So confession is just, it's confession is not listing your sins. It's agreeing with God. Last word, repentance. This is probably the most misunderstood word in the Bible. When a Christian hears the word repent, again, what do they tag with it? Of sin. Confession, sin. Repent, sin. The word repent literally means, you should know this by now, it's a Greek word, metanoia, and it means to think differently. Change your mind. Think differently. So, so repenting, in other words, you, you, this is what I get sometimes, and people like me. Well, you grace preachers, man, y'all don't preach on repentance, you know. I just saw something last week that basically said this same thing. It said, you know, you guys don't preach on repentance. I mean, God, yeah, all you talk about is God's grace and God's love and God's forgiveness and God's mercy. But you don't talk about, you know, God's also a God of justice, brother. That's how they say it. You know, God's a, God's a just God. What you mean is he's a judgment God. And you've got to get your head out of the old covenant. He's also a God of justice, and you know, and you know, and, and, and y'all need to preach on repentance. Let me tell you something. Listen to me. 
You do not get people to repent by preaching on repentance. And first thing you got to do is you got to define what repentance is. Repentance to that guy is telling them, turn from your sin. That's what they, they think repentance, this is what they've heard in church. Repentance means about face. Have you ever heard that? It means turn about face. It's a lie. It's not what it means. It means to think differently. The result of you thinking differently may be, hopefully is, that you will turn about face from the old way and turn to God. But listen, I've told you this before. Uh, imagine that these speakers are my sin. Huge. Bigger than me. But turning from my sin does not deal with the sin. Still there. You, you understand? When you say, when that guy talks about repentance, he says repent and you'll be saved. What he is saying is blasphemous because it actually makes repenting itself the act of salvation. It's saying that if you turn from sin, you'll be saved. That's a lie. Pharisees turn from sin every day and they were never saved. So listen, it is not turning from sin that saves a person. It is turning in faith to God through his son Jesus that brings salvation to a person. I don't have to worry about sin. All I have to do is turn to God. Let's say the pulpit's God. When I turn to God, don't preach to me about sin. Don't make this the issue. Make that the issue. Make me Christ conscious. Point me to Jesus. And when I turn to God, I've turned my back on sin. You don't have to talk to me about that no more. I know more about sin than you do probably. So don't tell, you know, in other words, a sinner, you don't have to educate them on sin. They know. What you got to educate them on is the grace of God, the goodness of God. Because you can't get people to, to, to repent by preaching on repentance. Why? Because the Bible says this, repentance is to change your mind. You think differently. And, and, and what it means is that, that when, you, when you make that decision, when, you, when you've changed the way you view things, uh, you do that because you've heard about the grace of God, the goodness of God. When, when, when somebody comes to salvation... In other words, your, your definition of repentance will reveal whether you're living under grace or under law. So in the old covenant, listen, sinners would, would repent and they would bring a sacrifice of penance and they would confess their sins. But under the new covenant, what kind of sacrifice do we bring in here today? We bring the sacrifice of praise. Do you remember that? That's the only sacrifice you can bring. In other words, all you do is you confess his name, bring a sacrifice of praise, and say, thank you, Jesus. That's all you can do. You, you, we, don't, we don't do anything to deal with our sin because Jesus has already done it all. Let, let me say this. When Paul, the apostle, walked into Corinth, and I've told you this, I think, a couple of Sundays ago, Corinth was like Las Vegas and spring break on steroids combined. Wicked, wicked city. you got to understand on every corner they had churches where part of their worship was a sexual act right on an altar with a prostitute. That was part of their worship. Um, uh, just a wicked, wicked city. But listen, when Paul went in there in 1st, 2nd Corinthians, never did he tell them to turn from sin. By, by the way, this just hits my mind. The word repentance is never used at all by the Apostle John. Not in the book of John, not in 1 John, 2 John, or 3 John. He never mentions the word repent, ever. He must have been a grace preacher. 
Never mentions it. Because you don't get people to repent by preaching on repentance. How do you get them to repent, Brother Dale? By preaching the goodness of God. For the Bible says in Romans that it is the goodness of God that leads people to repent. So that's why I'm going to talk about the goodness of God. I'm going to talk about the love of God. I'm going to talk about the forgiveness of God. I'm going to talk about the mercy of God. Because when they get that good news about his goodness, I don't have to say the word repent. They will repent. And by the way, people are repenting while I'm preaching right now. People repent in here every Sunday. I repent almost every day. When I read the Bible and I see a truth that I've never seen before, I repent. I change the way I think about that truth and I line my life up with that revelation of that truth and it brings me into a greater degree of freedom and liberty in Jesus. Come on and give him praise. Come on, stand to your feet. So it's the goodness of God that leads people to repent. So if you want people to repent... You keep doing what I'm doing. You tell them how good God is. You, you, you preach the good news to them. What, what really is the good news? This is it in a nutshell. God loves you. God loves them. Listen, he's not angry with you. Your sin has been dealt with on the cross by the blood of Jesus. God is not mad with you. You are not suffering at the hands of of God's punishment. Jesus bore your punishment. It would be illogical and absolutely wrong to punish two separate people for one sin. Either his son bore the punishment for sin or he did not. If he did, you're not suffering because God's punishing you. You can be suffering because you've made a decision to sin. Again, robbed a bank, you're in jail. But don't sit in jail and blame that God's paying me back. God did this to my marriage. No, you did it to the marriage. You made the business. You made the decision. So if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. But don't, don't get mad at Papa and say that he's mad with you because God is not an angry God anymore. Now, when I publish blogs and things and put out there, I'm amazed at how many Christians get angry with me when I tell them God's not angry with them. Some people will fight me tooth and toenail because they want an angry God. They want a God that's going to just knock them in the head. That's the only God they've ever heard about. If you don't straighten out, God will kill you. What about Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5? They weren't believers. God didn't kill them anyway. Sin kills in itself. You don't understand sin has its own built-in problem. Told you if you got an eye on the stove and it's red hot, God's not doing it. The eye did it to you. The eye hurt you. Sin, wages of sin, what? Death. Sin causes problems when you do it, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. So we've never taken a light position on sin. We're not making little of sin. We're making much of Jesus. But the Bible says if the sacrifice worked, you will have no more consciousness of sin. Hebrews 10. I want to tell you the sacrifice worked. And so the good news is that God died for you. And if you receive his death, then in that moment you receive the gift of righteousness. See, the problem is the gift. If somebody came up to you today, and I mean no kidding aside, if somebody came up to you, now you would go, man, I would really, this would just, yay, you know, pick me. But if somebody came up to you and they, 
they, they went to your home and you, never, you didn't know this person, never seen them before. And they went up to your home and they handed you a million dollar check. <laughs> I mean, we're like, yeah. They gave you a million dollar check and for the first few moments you'd be like, you might cry, you might jump up and down like your dad come there with the sweepstakes with the roses and the big cards, you know, the check. But, I mean, but you're going to be freaked out. But then as that settles for a moment, and if it's real, I'm, let's pretend, then you're going to have in thoughts. Now, why, who are you? Now, why, why are you giving me this? What does this mean about our relationship? What do you expect? Is there any strength? That's, come on. A lot of people, see, when somebody gives you a gift, like if they take you out to eat, then you automatically think, well, I need to take them out to eat. If they bought me a present for my birthday, oh, man, I got, now i got to buy them a present. That's how humans think. But see, here comes God with a gift that's beyond, you, you can't even value it. It's his own life. And he freely gives that to you. And you can't pay him back even with your very life. You ever heard save to serve? Lie. God didn't save you to serve him. God saved you because he loved you. You're going to serve him. Any dumb, dumb here, man that married a woman for that woman to serve him, probably is not married today. I married my wife not to serve me. I married her because I love her. She loves me. You know what we do for one another? We serve the daylights out of each other. She, she just serves me. and She'll just say, here, you know, did you? I mean, last night I was saying something. I said, that was so sweet. I think I was getting something, and she, she said, no, I'll get that for you. You know? Now, I, I was thinking late last night, I mean, that was so sweet. She's just serving me. I mean, she had to take extra steps. She had to go to the refrigerator when I was standing right there, and she, she did it for me. Why? Because she loves me. I serve the Lord. Paul said the grace of God now has called me to abound in works more than you all. Paul said, I work for God. I do things for God. I give. I, I do these things, but I don't do it now to, make, to be right with God. I do it now because I love God and, he's, and He loves me. It's just a whole different world. And it's so freeing and so liberating. That's the good news. And when you tell people the good news, and when they're exposed to the goodness of God. You remember Moses said one time in the Old Covenant, God, if I could just see your face. Show me your face, Lord. Just show me your glory. God said, okay, you want to see it? He said, I'm going to take you, I'm going to put you in the, by my side. By my side. Look at the imagery now. By my side is a rock. And it's got a cleft in it. An opening. And I'm going to put you inside that rock. And I'm going to cover you with my hand. And then I'm going to cause my, listen, my goodness to pass by before you. So that you can see my hinder part. Christians read that and go, well, God passed by where Moses could see his behind. How ridiculous. God's spirit. What God was saying was, who do you think that rock is that's by God's side? Why do you think that rock is cleft? When that Roman soldier put that sword in his side, he cleft an opening in Jesus, the rock. You can't see anything accurately unless you're in Christ. And God took Moses and put him spiritually, symbolically in Christ, in that rock that's by his side. And from being in Christ, he saw the goodness of God. 
And he saw in the beginning God created. He saw the past, the hinder part of God. That's why he could write the first five books of the Bible. Because in that moment, he saw Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. He saw the creation of the world. He saw that the, 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 first, the evening and the morning was the first day, and it was good that God made. And he saw the second day God created, and it was good. And he saw the third day was good. And the fourth day was good. And the fifth day was good. And he saw on the sixth day that God made man. And in his image and likeness, he said, it's very good what I've done. He saw the goodness of God. And it caused Moses to change how he viewed God. And that's why Moses didn't have no problem with Papa from that day forward. Because he said the children of Israel, all they see is his deeds. What he does or doesn't do or the prayers he answers that they seem like he doesn't answer. They're confused and they always go astray in their hearts. Hebrews 3 and 4 says, because they don't know the ways of God. But Moses, you know my ways. You know I'm a good, good father. That's who I am. And all my ways toward you are good. God's never done you disservice one moment, one second. God's never been the source of your pain. He's the author, not of your pain. He's the author and the finisher of your faith. He loves you. He died for you. And he's already forgiven you. You may never accept that free gift, but it's already been paid. In your sin account, zero balance. You have no barrier to your healing. You have no barrier for the blessing of God. You have no sin barrier for God liking you, loving you, blessing you, healing you, touching you, helping you. God has no problem with sin because his son paid for it. Now, God loves you, and he don't want you to do sin no more than I want my little children or grandbabies to stick their hand in the fan. It ain't, it ain't a sin issue. It's a hurt issue. I know what that thing will do to them. And God says, I know what sin will do to you. I know the sting of sin. And I know the sting of death. Don't touch it. Come to me. Be God conscious, Christ conscious, not sin conscious. And live out of that revelation. Live out of the free gift of no condemnation. Go, sin no more. But if you do sin, you've got an advocate, and he's always there. Christ Jesus the righteous. I want to say this one little statement. Some of you may be standing there right now because you read the Bible and you think you know this. There's only one verse in the whole entire Bible, New Testament, that even alludes to the fact possibly that you'd confess your sins. And having preached this, I, I think it'd be negligent on my part not to mention it. 1 John 1, 9, if you'll put it up, 1 John 1, 9, says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that right? And you say, right there, brother, it says it. No, because you don't read good. I don't mean to offend you, but you just don't know how to read very well. The verse above it says these, were, they, these people said that they never even had a problem with sin. And by the way, if you put up that, that, that word right there where it says confess our sins and you see plural, and then uh, you see the word sins again, plural, if you look in your Strong's Concordance, it's singular. And if you look at this last O-U-R, our, our sins, that word our, if you got a King James Bible, New King James, you'll see it italicized. That means it's been added by the translators. So actually what it says, if we confess our noun, sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now once a person has been born again, they have no unrighteousness. So this verse couldn't be talking to the Christians. 
It would be an oxymoron verse. Once you've been born again, you are now the righteousness of God, and you have no, not a moment of unrighteousness. Only in your head of religion. If you are a Christian and you, you use that as your hammer verse, and why you try to confess all your sins every day, I want you to know for a fact, according to the Bible, the sin, words of sin there are, are not verbs or nouns. And what you're confessing when you say you confess your sins is you're confessing your action you did, which is a verb. But the actual scripture, sins there are, are nouns. The word sins is nouns. So you can't confess a noun as an action. So, in other words, you're actually violating scripture and grammar. Because <laughs> you're trying to confess and make that noun a verb. If you would just study the Bible, you'd see how ridiculous some of this mess we've hung on. So, so you're actually violating the whole principle of that verse. Because you're saying, I did this thing that's wrong, which was a verb. Now I'm going to confess it. No, that verse ain't got nothing to do for that. Because sin is a noun. Grace is the verb. Grace is the action, the state of being that, that Christ brought. And I just, and you can read that whole chapter right there. And, and it's just so clear that he's not even, he's talking to the people that were sin deniers. The next verse after that one says that if you say you have no sin, they said we have no sin. I've never met anybody dumb enough. To say they've never committed, had any kind of relationship with sin ever in their life. Have you? This is what these people were doing. They said sin don't exist. Well, when you do that, you make God a liar because you say you sent his son to shed his blood for sinning. But you're saying there is no sin, so you make God a liar. That's what he said. No, sin is a problem. Jesus came to pay for it. But he's not telling Christians in this one verse. And by the way, don't ever allow one verse that seems obscure to you, to you or me to negate 20 plus other verses that clearly says in the New Testament your sins are, have been forgiven. Because if that one verse is like you want to make it believe, like somebody led you to believe, then that makes 20 verses in the New Testament a lie. Can't have it both ways. White meat, dark meat, come on, get your, pick your chicken out day after we get through preaching. How many knows the good news that calls people to repent? Come on, give God praise today. <laughs> Ministry team, would you come quickly? Ministry team, come down front, please, quickly. We love you guys so much, man. We just want to give you an opportunity for prayer if you desire that today. It's just our great privilege always to pray with people, meet people. If you just want to come up and say hi, howdy, we'll, we'll do that too. And uh, if you want to just rush out and go eat, we'll do that with you. Hallelujah. Just tell us where we're meeting at. But we love you guys and just thank God. Aren't you glad you've been forgiven? Aren't you glad his blood has washed away the sin problem? Man, I want to encourage you guys. And, uh, you know, I, I've been going around a lot of these different community groups, especially our new ones. Man, I'm so blessed by what's going on there. Man, be in this community. This, this church is not a Sunday gathering. It's a community. It's a family. We're sharing life together. And you don't have to worry about people going to put you on the spot and, you know, jam you up with some question or thought. or You don't even have to open your mouth if you want to. But, man, if you could just find your community group, get one, of these, get one of these groups, man. Share life, share community, ask questions. Well, I know I lay down some heavy stuff sometimes, particularly if you've been in 
you know, like where I was raised, you're like, good gracious. But you get to ask those questions. You get to talk about it, and people can help you in the journey. Hey, I'm growing just long, right along with you. Hadn't got it all figured out. But, man, I'm not arrived, but like I said, I have sure left the station, baby. I ain't where I was. And all I've seen is God's a far better God than I ever dreamed he was. And he accomplished far more on the cross than I was ever told. And it just makes me love him more and receive his love for me more. Amen. So if you want prayer while we dismiss the church and they go that way, you come this way, okay? God bless you. You're dismissed. If you want prayer, we're down front waiting on you. God bless you.